Let me be among the first. I can't say that I am the first necessarily, but let me be among the first to wish you a Merry Christmas. As uh, Thanksgiving is now past, we enter into the Christmas season. And as such, uh, we're going to spend the next several weeks uh, with a topic uh, surrounding uh, the issue of Christmas. We're going to be looking at uh, what I'm going to label the, the songs of Christmas. And by songs of Christmas, I don't mean Christmas songs that we necessarily sing. Um, those of you who know me know I'm not a huge fan of Christmas music. Um, I do have songs that I love. Oh, Holy Night uh, moves me to tears sometimes uh, when it's done right and so forth. But uh, um, I, I do believe that songs play a very important role in uh, the Christmas celebration of Christmas and the realities that we encounter there. And uh, so I want to look at that, and I'm going to look at that through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. There are two birth narratives in uh, the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Uh, they have each has their own distinctive flavor, their own distinctive feel. But what I find interesting is that the one that's written to a Gentile audience, the Gospel of Luke, written to a certain individual or a representative individual named Theophilus, um, clearly a, a Roman citizen of, of some uh, repute, um, that it's Luke writing to a Gentile audience that contains four clearly Hebraic Jewish songs uh, embedded in the narratives. And, um, and I think that goes to the heart of the power of music. Music is powerful in what it can do, what it can accomplish. I don't know if you've ever um, done this, but there, there are several videos so forth on YouTube where they take uh, key scenes from movies and they remove the, the, the musical soundtrack behind them. And so you watch these scenes, some of which uh, you, you grew up with, some of which are very powerful scenes that, that have always moved you and so forth, but when you watch them without the music present, you're like, eh, that's not, <laughs> it's not quite the same. It doesn't quite hit you the same way. Music can can stir your emotions. It can move you in, in, in wonderful directions. And Luke uses that uh, in his gospel to, uh, to very powerful means. Um, and, and I believe a, a part of the power is that music songs can be very personal and yet also universal. Okay, um, All of us have those, those special songs. You know, songs that were are part of you know your relationship, perhaps with a significant other, or songs that take you back to your childhood, or songs that that take you back to uh, the moment when you decided to accept Christ. You know, I can't hear the Savior is waiting. You know, as an invitation song, without thinking of my own salvation experience. Songs are very personal in that way, and yet we all also kind of connect with them. You know, we all also. Can, can sing and, and join in together. There's a way of that music has of, of bringing us together. And Luke records four songs for us, three of which were uttered by individuals deeply touched and affected by the events of that first Christmas. And the fourth song is a song of heaven, as it rejoices with man at the coming of peace. Now, our goal over the next couple of weeks, however, is not just to look at these songs, but to experience them for ourselves, to hear what they're saying, and to make these songs our songs, to, to revel in the redemption, in the peace, in the trust, in the hope 
that's expressed in them and to find those same experiences for ourselves. Now, one of the things you're going to note, especially if you're one of those who's uh, attentive to detail, is that in, I don't believe in any of these songs, I, I could be wrong, but I don't believe in any of these songs it says that the person uttering them sang. That it says, and then they sang the, the words. How do we know their songs then if it doesn't say they sang? We know by, by the, the form of writing that is used. If you have a, a more modern translation, you'll note that when you come to these passages, they, they go into kind of a verse script. They, they go into a, a poetic kind of flow. They're, they're no longer the, the narrative sentence structure. They're now set off uh, in a very different writing style. And, and that's evident in the original Greek that, that's present in our Greek New Testaments. So we know their songs by their style, by their form, by their, by their content and how they're written. Even though it doesn't say they were sung, they would have been expressed in a song-like manner by these individuals. Now the first song we come upon is the song of Zechariah. And if you don't know who Zechariah is, Zechariah, he was a priest. He was, a, he was an individual who um, was uh, up in age. Uh, his wife, likewise, was up in age, and they were as... Uh, is often uh, the account in the scriptures without child. Um, it's a very common theme, especially in the Old Testament patriarchs, that you have uh, this man and this woman who have gotten up in age, who have not had a child, and then God steps in and blesses them with that little one. It's an expression of God's grace. It's an expression of, of the fact that, that uh, the, the child of grace, the child of hope, the child of of a future can only come from uh, the work of God Himself. And what we've experienced in Israel, what's, what's been happening in Israel over the last uh, couple of hundred years is, is what's known as the period of silence. It, it's a time in which God has not been as evident in the national workings of Israel as perhaps He was what we'd call during the Old Testament times. He's been, he's been present. You had the events uh, surrounding uh, what we call Hanukkah today, uh, around 160 uh, B.C. Uh, he's clearly moved in Israel's working, but you haven't really had a prophetic voice. You haven't really had uh, someone who, who, who rises up, who addresses Israel with, with power and with, with clarity. And so Israel has been in this, in this slumber, in the in this silence for, for a couple of centuries now. And the fact that God begins His narrative, begins His work by uh, creating a, a reality that's very similar to the patriarchs is, is a way of, of communicating that He is once again ready to work. He's once again ready to move in the lives of Israel. And I have to, I have to believe that, that some of us here this morning kind of find ourselves in, in maybe a similar situation to Israel. We had a time in our life, we had a time in our walk where we were very close to God, where, where we experienced His, His work and His presence on a daily basis. Where, where we saw the wonders of His power and we shared our faith with clarity and with conviction. But somewhere along the line, that has dulled. And it seems to us, perhaps, that, that we've entered into our own 
period of silence. And I want you to understand that, that God wants to speak to you, wants to speak into your life, into your existence, just as he began to speak into the life and the existence of Israel here in our text this morning. Now, Zechariah, this priest, this, this elder uh, individual, he's ministering in the temple, and he receives uh, a, a visit from an angel. And, and this angel identifies himself as Gabriel, and, and he says to Zechariah, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son, in fact. And Zechariah, in response, expresses disbelief. Now, he expresses this disbelief despite the fact that he grew up knowing the story of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebekah, of, of these individuals throughout the Old Testament who had experienced a, a similar reality. Up in age, seemingly not going to have children at all, visited by God, told that they're going to have a child, and then blessed with that child. He, he knew those stories. He lived those stories. He preached those stories, I'm sure, as a priest. He told those stories to, to children there uh, in the synagogue and in the temple and so forth. This, this was his life, and yet now he is confronted with this similar reality, and he doesn't believe. How can this be? I'm old. My wife is old. It doesn't make any sense. And so the angel says, because you haven't believed, because you've heard the word of God and you haven't believed, you will not be able to speak until all that I've told you comes to pass. And he comes out from his work there in the temple and he encounters the people there and he can't talk to them. He's supposed to talk to them. He's supposed to give them instruction, some guidance, but no speech is coming. And so they realize he has experienced something significant. And he goes through the time of the pregnancy of his wife. He, and the child is ultimately born, and they ask, uh, they take him to be circumcised on the eighth day. And they ask his mother, what will he be named? And his mother says, he'll be called John. And everybody's perplexed. Why John? There's no Johns in your family. I mean, in our family, we name, we name our children after a grandfather, a father, an uncle, somebody significant in their life. There's no Johns in your family. Why would you name them that? And they say, Zechariah, what do you think? And Zechariah writes out on a tablet. His name is John. And immediately his voice comes back. And he's able to speak. He's able to uh, express himself. He's able to communicate what's happening. And what's he do? He breaks into song. And it's a song of redemption. It's a song that reflects the fact that though he had failed God, God had not failed him. And it's a song that reflects the fact that though he had expressed unbelief and distrust, God was still very much present and working in his life, and not just his life, but the lives of Israel as well. And that's where I want to pick up.
this morning, beginning in verse 67, chapter 1. Follow along with me in, in your scriptures or, or on the screen uh, if you like. It says, Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in the ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who, will, who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your redemption. God, we pray that as we look at this song of redemption this morning and the truth that it communicates to us, Lord, may we come to understand uh, redemption. May those who are here who have never experienced the redemption, the salvation that you offer through your Son, may they respond in faith to that and experience the joy and the hope and the future that comes from a relationship with you. But Lord, those of us who have experienced it, those of us who have, have walked in it, God, we pray that you would renew and refresh our perspective of redemption. Help us to see how uh, amazing it is, how wonderful it is, and to take great joy in that as we enter into this Christmas season. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Now, as you look at Zechariah's song, one of the first things I think that, that, that pops out to me, that, that occurs to me, is that redemption is rooted in the promises of God. When you look at what he has to say here, what does he do? He rehearses the things that God has done in the past. He rehearses the promises that God has given. He mentions the, the, the promise to his servant David. He mentions the, the promise to his servant, to their father Abraham. He mentions the, the word through the prophets. These things where God has come into the lives of individuals and he said, I have a plan. I have a purpose. And, and one of the things that, that I often like to, to highlight during this, this time uh, of year when, when a lot of people are talking about the prophecies of Jesus is I like to highlight, I like to point out that it's really more appropriate to address the prophecies of Jesus as the promises concerning Jesus. In other words, it's not as if God is trying to quote, show off his ability to look into the future and say, this is going to happen one day. That's not his intention. We, we know God being timeless. We know God being over these things. That God could tell us any number of things about the future, all the things we, need, we might want to know about the future, and that shouldn't really surprise us or shock us. That's who God is. But a promise is, is far more personal. 
Uh, a promise is, is far more uh, in, in, an investment in the future. It's not just God saying something's going to happen. It's God saying, this is going to happen because I'm going to make it happen. Because I'm going to be a part of it. Because I'm going to be a part of your life. I'm going to be a part of your experience. And, and so as we look at the redemption that, that Zechariah is experiencing here, and the, the, the redemption that he's saying God is going to bring to Israel as a whole, we understand that that redemption is rooted in the promises of God. It's something God had planned. It's something God had already communicated. Starting right there in the garden, right after the fall, he shall bruise your head, God says, of the one who's coming. And he goes and moves to, to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then you move to, to David, one who's coming and, and he'll sit on a throne, an eternal throne, one that will not perish, one that will not pass away. And then you look at the prophets and, and their expressions of, of this one who's coming who will transform things, and by his stripes we will be healed. The redemption that is outlined here is, is embedded, it's rooted in the promises of God. And your redemption, your potential redemption, or the redemption that you've experienced is rooted in the promises of God. What God has said he will do, he will do. What God has begun, Paul tells us in Philippians, he will see through to completion. He's not one who has simply expressed these things and said, this is what it takes to be saved, and, and this is what is involved in, in having a relationship with me, and then he leaves and says, you take care of that. He is a God who came and what? He dwelled among us. He lived and walked where we walk and where we live. And he pursued us in his love. A love that took him to the cross to die in our place. He's invested in us. He's invested in you. He's invested in your future. He has paid the price. He has done the work. He has accomplished the task. It is finished, he proclaimed there on the cross. He has done what is necessary for you to experience redemption. And your redemption is sealed. Your redemption is sure because His promises are sure and certain. Now the second thing I think we see in this text is that the thanksgiving is the first result of redemption. Giving thanks. Hopefully that was something that you... Uh, we're able to participate in this past week. Big ways, small ways. You were able to look at your life, your experiences, your blessings, your family. And you were able to experience uh, this, this need, this desire, this drive to simply say thank you to God. Thank you for what you've done. Because I don't deserve it. I look at my life, I look at the things that, that I've gone through, and some of them have been very hard. Some of them have been very difficult. But I live a blessed life. I, I, I live a life um, where I'm able to, 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 to do my, my, uh, my dream jobs, plural. I'm able to, to love a congregation such as 
yourself and be loved by you. I'm able to invest in the life of young men and women, see what God's doing in their life. To, to do those things together is the dream come true. God has richly blessed me. And I know some in our congregation experience some, some very difficult realities this past week. I, I know that uh, there were some loved ones who were lost. And my heart breaks for those, for those families. And I prayed for those families. And, and I hope that you're praying for your brothers and sisters who are going through some painful moments right now in their loss. But even in the midst of, of such great loss, even in the midst of, of such sorrow and, and pain, we have a Savior who loves us. And we can experience thanksgiving because of the redemption He's given us. This whole psalm, this whole song is characterized by a spirit of thanksgiving. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You see that played out here. He's so happy. He's so filled with joy over the fact that he has a son. The fact that he has been given his voice again to, to be able to carry out the, the, the task that he's been called to as a priest. But it's not just his own personal experience he's joyful about. It's the salvation of Israel that drives him. He's a man that's thrilled by God's plan of redemption. He understands that God is working in the world according to his purposes. And this is a, a, a big moment for Israel, a, a new spirit of of expectation, a new spirit of movement has begun to work in their lives and in their experience. Two centuries of silence are now met with God bringing a miraculous birth into play. The one who will make way for the Messiah is about to be born. And it's in that truth that we that we understand that, that Thanksgiving always leads to expectation. You ever notice that? That that in those moments when something really good happens and, and you're thankful for it and, and you're expressing that thankfulness, what what is happening next? You're looking around saying, okay, what's next? Okay. I think of, of Christmas morning, especially as a child, you know, you're given your first gift, and you open that first gift, and you're excited, and you open it, and you see it, and you're like, thank you, thank you, and then you're like, okay, where's the next present, right? The one present leads to the next present. You're, you're, you're ready. This thankfulness and this experience has led to an expectation of more, and, and that's what you see here with, with Zechariah. You see the fact that he, he, he sees that the, the promises of God are, are being fulfilled. The things God has said are being fulfilled in his own personal life. The angel said, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And guess what? He's had a son and he named him John. And he's seen the promises of God fulfilled. And, and he's like, what's next? 
what's happening next. I, I, I'm looking forward to this. I, I'm opening. I'm open to see what God's going to do in our work and in our life. My hope is that this past week of, of Thanksgiving has not just been a, an expression of thanks for what's happened in the past, but, but an expectation of what God's going to do in the future. We're coming out of, hopefully, we're coming out of, of a very dark period in, in, in our nation on multiple levels. And even though we've heard of this, this new strain, this Omicron strain of, of uh, COVID, can't help but, but think and see in a lot of people's eyes an expectation of deliverance, an expectation of hope, a, a readiness for a new reality in their life, a future. And, and so I, I look forward to that, and I hope that you do too, that there's an expectation of what God's going to do with this Christmas season. I look forward to to singing those songs with you. I look forward to our, our candlelight service in a couple of weeks. I look forward to um, what God's going to do uh, in our midst and how God continues to move amongst us. And it's in that looking forward that we see the relationship between expectation and faith. That expectation inevitably leads to a vivid faith. Who is God? Who am I? Zechariah's own song of praise grows out of the fact that he's experienced the unexpected. The power of the unexpected. He, he's, an old, he's an old man who's now a new father. And, and being this this new father, and experiencing this new reality in his life. It's changed everything. Just nine months earlier, he was in a long-term state of resignation to having no children. He had given up on the idea of ever having children. So much so that when an angel says, you're going to have one, he's like, nah, probably not. He'd given up. But now his whole mind has changed. That a change has taken place. God has given him a son in spite of his disbelief, and Zechariah is filled with the spirit of assurance. And he, if you look at the text, he's so confident of God's redeeming work that he speaks of the achievements of the coming Messiah in the past tense. Now think about that. This is what the Messiah not is going to do, Zechariah says. Read, read the text carefully. It's not what the Messiah is going to do. It's what the Messiah has already done, even before it's happened. That's faith. Confidence, what? In things not seen, but things hoped for. It's what faith is. It's what faith is, how it's described for us. For him, the Lord of Israel is as good as having appeared. He has come and redeemed his people already. Zechariah says in this song. That is a vivid faith. That's a living faith. How do we get there? We get there by praying and listening to God. Now we know for the, for the past several months, Zechariah hasn't been able to speak. So what do you do when you can't talk? 
What do you do as a priest when you can't talk? You talk to the one who doesn't need words. You spend time in prayer. You spend time focusing upon Him and what He's done and what He's called you to. You spend time meditating upon His Word, reflecting upon what He said. And, and you get the sense here as, as Zechariah is expressing this that, that he's, he's almost just, he, he's just blurting out all the things he's discovered in God's Word or, or he's rediscovered or he's re-experienced in God's Word over the last couple of months of reading and meditating and praying. He'd been unable to speak. He was under the judgment of Yahweh, and yet we can see the fruit of his listening and his reading and his meditating in the psalm that he expresses. It's my prayer this morning that you have an experience, you have a journey. Of redemption. Because if you have a story of redemption, then you have a story as, as vivid and miraculous and wonderful as Zechariah's story. Because when God stepped in, when Jesus stepped into your life and changed you, He changed everything. He changed your future. He changed your outlook. He changed your direction. He changed your purpose. He changed your place. He changed everything. It is to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, to be redeemed by the, the life of, of Christ dwelling within us is to experience a dramatic change, is to experience a, a, a movement from death to life, a movement from being an enemy. And as we sang earlier, sitting at His table. Think about that. We were opposed to God. We were at odds with God. We were uh, in rebellion against God, storming the gates of the castle, as it were, attacking Him and, and rejecting Him and denying Him and, and refusing to listen to Him, the God and King of this universe. We were saying, we don't need you. We don't want you. And He moved in and He saved us and He redeemed us and He changed us. And then in that moment of transformation, He said, you know what? Put down your sword and shield and come sit at my table with me. Dine with me and be my friend. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. A work that we never would have pursued, a work that we never would have thought possible. He has accomplished. Such a faith should result in a commitment to proclaim Christ. I think it's interesting that he doesn't even mention his son until three-fourths of the way through. The psalm. Verse 76 is the first mention we have of John himself. Everything else has been about the promises of God. Everything else has been about the glory of God. Everything else has been about the power of God and what God has done in his life and in 
Israel's life. And as he moves to focus on his son, even then, he, he doesn't focus on his son just for his son's sake. He says what? You will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, before the Messiah to prepare his way. You will be the voice that continues from this moment, is what he's saying of John. My praise of God and, and my acknowledgement of God and, and my expressions of who God is, they're going to continue in your voice. And what are you going to do? You're, you're going to express God's mercy. You're going to give His people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. You're going to be the one who, who expresses a, a new beginning. The dawn from on high will visit us. You're be, going to be the one who brings light into the darkness. And though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, of fear and no evil, why? Because you will be the one God uses to guide our feet into the way of peace. The faith that Zechariah experienced, the vivid reality of what God had accomplished, what God was going to accomplish, led him to this drive, to this push, to proclaim the Christ and what he could do in the lives of Israel. This morning, my question to you is, as we enter into this Christmas season, what is it you're going to be proclaiming? What is it you're going to be expressing? If you're rooted in the promises of God, if you're experiencing the thanksgiving that grows out of the redemption that He's given, if that thanksgiving has, has led to expectation, that expectation has led to faith, then you cannot help but express and communicate a commitment to the Christ who saved you, to the one who loves you, and to the one who came to bring light into the darkness, the one who came to bring life from death the one who came to bring hope from hopelessness. We utter the words all the time. It's become almost a, a cliche. I guess it probably is a cliche. Jesus is the reason for the season. We see it on bumper stickers. We see it on signs. And it's certainly true. But my hope and prayer for this particular season is that we would see and understand that Jesus is the reason for everything. He's the center of all that we are. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our redemption. And that needs to be at the heart of all we express and all we do and all we pursue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your son. I thank you for the redemption that he offers. I thank you for the life and the hope that he brings. I thank you for so much.
God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know what it means to be in a relationship with you, who's never experienced a redemption that reveals the truth of who you are to them, that, that reveals the hope and the joy and the fullness of life that you alone can offer, Lord, that you would draw them this morning and they would respond in faith. They'd seek out uh, the person they came with or or someone else or myself after the service and say, what does it mean? What does it take to experience the salvation that you talked about? And Lord, that we would simply point to surrender. It takes surrender of our will to yours and entering into a relationship with the one who loves us, who died for us who gives us power to live again. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, those that are hurting, those that are in their own period of silence, Lord, that you would speak once again to them clearly, that you would awaken in them a recognition, a realization of your goodness, and that they would respond with the joy of the redemption you've granted. Lord, I thank you for each person here. I pray that you bless them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.